Hello and welcome to the December edition of the Hashtag build to perform podcast. Last time we were talking about indoor air quality, but this edition will focus on one of the biggest events in the SIBSI calendar, the conference and exhibition. If you went to the conference, you may have already had the chance to see our speakers, or you may have read last week's blog, Back to the Future, released on the Friday 9th of December, which discussed the session, Are You Ready for a Digital Future? If not, you may have heard that the future of the building services sector is one of the key topics up for discussion at this year's event. We heard from 50 different speakers across the two days, in which just about all of them touched on the future in some regard on topics like BIM, air quality, school design and retrofitting. But one of the most valuable discussions about the future actually came from a look into the past, looking back at the last 50 years of building services with Patrick Bellew of Atelier 10 and Max Fordham. Having seen the last days of the drafting desk and the rise of the computer as an engineer's primary design tool, the session showed us an interesting perspective on what we can learn from the past about approaching revolutionary technology. We start with Max Fordham on sustainability. The, the need to grasp the nettle of what we're going to do about um, sustainability is really strong. And I think we're not going to do it. So we will push the, the easy wins like nu nuclear fusion. It's just beginning. Mind you, De Gaulle did it in France, what, in 1974. He just went ahead and they did a, a great big tidal barrage in France and now they're tidal wind turbines and nuclear fission. France more or less jumped into the lead position of making new nuclear generators. And um, really, we, we could just look at France and say, why don't we do more of that? It seems to me pretty clear. So, well, we agree with we'll good, good point. I'll come to the floor for in, in a moment, but just um, uh, if you could also set out your um, priorities. Uh, well, I mean, Max has, Max has said a lot. A lot my, my, I share the sentiments about the politics and about sort of macro power issues. I suppose from us, for us as engineers, I think you know the last 15, 20 years in our profession and our industry have seen an enormous improvement in, in everybody's sense about what we should be doing to, to address the environmental issues. And I think the question is for us now is, is sort of where next. I think that the sort of the baseline has, has elevated to a point where we're all building you know buildings that are so much better in terms of performance than they were 15 or 20 years ago. There is still that question of performance gap and how do we, do we actually know how they're performing and I do think one of the big challenges and something that we all should be looking at is, is, is using smart metering and using metering to help try and close performance gap. There are plenty of companies now who can, you know, will go in and, and retrofit meters into old buildings and you can start to look at how buildings are performing a lot more accurately. It's not very exciting, it's not very sexy. That is a problem for that whole area of work. How do, you make that, how do we make that kind of performance gap a, big, a, a, a more important part of our part of the process. And I think the thing that we're seeing the biggest change in is digital analysis and moving away from sort of conventional, you know, 10 years ago or five years ago, you know, you didn't even have to energy model a building. You would just do the part L calculations and size the heat and stuff like that. Now every building gets energy models. Now we're in a position with, with these sort of smart tools. Um, I keep mentioning Grasshopper and those sorts of things. You know, we now can run 10,000 energy models, energy versions of an energy model of a building in a weekend and produce a analysis that gives you a kind of way of optimising um, for, for costs and, and demonstrating value to clients of high-performance building alternatives. You have to be careful because the reductive model actually for a residential home is, um, I think, is a completely fully insulated passive house box with no windows, um, a solar panel and LED light. 
Um, and you said there is a slight human element you have to bring in, so you have to be careful not to let the reductive computer models drive it too far. So there's still a degree of sensibility that we have to bring to that. But I, I think those sorts of processes are going to start to help us you know, credibly optimise design in a way that we haven't been able to do before. You know, I, I said earlier, I started out my career very much as an intuitive engineer. You know, you're working with basic laws of physics, and you know, we used to talk, we used to talk about the animal architecture and termites, and you know, we've kind of moved on from that. But you know, you can't you can't get away with that anymore. You really do have to model a hell out of things to understand how they're performing. And I think that's a we're finding that's a, is, a, is a game changer in the way we're working. Do we do enough post occupancy? No. No, I mean, not really. I, hand on heart, I don't think. There are people in that space who are working hard to do all that. I'm not sure we do. My, my other concern, I, Max and I were chatting about this yesterday, is, is, um, is the rise of BIM and the impact it's having on the time we're spending on design and the time we're spending on the right things at the right time of projects. Um, we're starting to find that the, the kind of the, we're drawing too much too early. And I know it is the BIM way, and I know I'm going to be hung as a heretic or burned at the stake or something for saying this. But I, I find, I, we're finding as a practice that you know, our, the costs of drawing have gone from about 8% to about 22% of our operating costs. Value engineering becomes an impossibly expensive task because you have to change over-design models. And actually, we're ending up drawing at old stage E or um, RBA stage 3 or 4. We're ending up drawing what the contractors should be drawing further down the line. I, I have a real, you know, we're, we're doing it, we're, everyone's doing it, we're all adopting it, that's what we're supposed to do. But I'm, I'm really concerned that it's taking some of the creativity and the iterative nature of design out of the process because you kind of all start working on a model almost too soon and by the time you've done all that work, it's really hard to change it. The other thing we're finding is it becomes a, it becomes a sort of a, 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 um, almost a weapon that's being used. The, the intention of it is that it, it, it brings the design team and the contracting team together. The problem you get is, is that um, little changes can make, make problems appear very large. You know, a, a change in a structural cell, cell beam, for example, that means you suddenly get 6,000 clashes because all of the pipes are just missing the holes in the BIM model. So you know, the contractors have got 6,000 clashes on this drawing. Go, well, actually, we haven't. All you have to do is you know, adjust to the new cell, cell beam. And then someone's got to spend hours moving all the, all the pipes by 50 mil to get them to go through the hole to avoid a contractual issue with 6,000 um, clashes on a drawing. Those, those are the sorts of things that we know, we've got to be really careful as an industry that we handle this clip with a bit more smarts and the kind of dash for it. We're all learning it, you know, everyone's learning it, and it, it does have enormous benefits in some areas. But I'm concerned that it's taking a moment in the design phase away from us because we're spending too much time worrying about the exact geometry and not enough time about the physics of how the systems go together. Because you see, one of the, one of the difficult things about doing research and saying um, and improving the industry is that you do an idea like that and you have a hypothesis and developing a hypothesis to be a theory is a big job and actually if you're an engineer you just get on and do some more engineering and um, <clears throat> that I think is one of the uh, one of the one of the issues about that Patrick began to touch on, which is that design of buildings is an intuitive process, and it requires vision to think about what we should be going to do next for the benefit of humankind. And if you take the vision out of the process, then it makes it very difficult 
What's actually happening at the moment is that people are uh, going through something called the design of a building, where you do masses and masses of computed calculations to predict an end. Your approach to meeting an energy target. The energy target is quite simple. Zero carbon. That's the energy target. And I think you can achieve that by making sure that the work energy you use um, is the thing that really matters. And the work energy you use in a building degenerates into heat and can be called the metabolism of the building and used to heat the building. And for housing, that's just about possible. And of course it's possible for offices because there's an immense amount of energy going into the, all the computers, servers and all that. And you only got to catch that energy and use it and you're away. And the, I think the computation is making it more difficult to do that sort of intuitive thinking. And that in a way, the, the diversity question brings it back to saying, well, it was just a bit of intuition and um, anybody can do it, actually. It's extremely simple to do. <coughs> and we had, we had reasonably, we have now in the office bright physicists and mathematicians who are doing that sort of thing all the time. And there it is. And I think somehow the ability to be doing the real engineering without using too much computation, because the algorithms used in the, com in the computer calculations are difficult. Show me an al algorithm which describes, which would enable you to calculate the temperature of a burial chamber in a pyramid as being 20 degrees centigrade uniform throughout the year for the last 4,000 years. And that's, that's the kind of thinking we need to be doing. Rather than a purely digital future, it seems Max Fordham is arguing for an augmented future. And while it's impossible to discount the difference that technology has made in the everyday lives of engineers, there's a danger in giving over too much power to the data at the expense of time-tested engineering nous. Here's what Patrick Bellew had to say on the subject. We, 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 we still need to draw. We draw you know, one draws in different ways at different work stages. I, I just think that, um, you know, I, I sort of, at moments, I have occasional flashbacks to Latham, um, which is a weird thing to happen, but it does. I mean, Latham basically said that, you know, designers should draw less and contractors should draw more. That's how I took Latham report, basically said, you know, the consultants are doing too much design and the contracting area work should probably do more. And, and now, um, after Paul Morell's sort of um, march to BIM, we're actually doing designing even more and drawing beautiful rendered drawings of boilers that are not going to get installed because the contractor's going to change the manufacturer and the connection's been in a different place anyway. <laughs> so what, why have we drawn these beautiful pictures? I, so I, I still find this kind of... It, it, yes, I think I agree with you. Tell me that's what you're saying. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of my... I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm in, in danger of doubling my heresy, but there we are. What's the old saying? Chris Custodius, Ipsos Custodius. Who will watch the watchers? The, the, the thing about metering is it's only as good as, uh, as, as if, if someone has got to be looking at the metering to, to have any benefit of it. You can, you can fill a building with meters, 
Um, but it's, 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 it's knowledge without a, an observer if it's just knowledge. And so you know, the, the process that has to be put in place doesn't necessarily rest with us as designers. What rests with us as designers is to put in place systems that are legible and accessible and give you the information that you need uh, to, to, to find out either if the building is... is um, but the most useful part of it, I suspect, is when buildings start to go out of tolerance after a few years or you get a component failure, um, or you, and, you know, it allows you to do post-occupancy evaluation online. Now, there are companies now that offer tracking services um, that will actually, um, there's one at EP&T, I think, or an Australian company coming now, they will, they will monitor um, and track um, building performance and will phone up the building manager and say something is going, you know, pump's going out of tolerance, you, can, you should fix it, or looks at how the building's performing related to weather data. Those, that's, you know, you need to layer onto it. Once the building is built, you need to layer onto it a layer of management and operation. At this year's Young Engineers Awards, the hopeful finalists were tasked with presenting a view on the place of the engineer in modern building services, where we have computers which are so much more capable than they were even 10 years ago. Some of the finalists opted to forecast less human involvement, while some opted to forecast more. Seems that Max and Patrick have pretty firmly come down in the more camp, but what exactly will that more look like? Dwight Wilson of Imtech said in our Digital Future session that the problems with the way we operate is that we're capturing reams of data using computers, but we aren't processing it effectively at our end. Is this where engineers can add the most value? Patrick Bellew continues. The metering does help. Like an example, we, we had a project in the States that we did. It's a, a, a yeah, forestry school, a super green building, and uh, we had a, a ground source heat pump that was doing the basic uh, the background heating and cooling, a deep well ground source heat pump, and we had a, a little electric top-up tank for the very, very risky moment that the, the, the ground source couldn't cope. So there was a tank. And in the, in the first year, we went back and did a post-occupancy evaluation and found that the, everything was just slightly out of whack and we couldn't figure out what it was. And in the control sequence, it turned out that the, the, the heat, electric heater was being prioritised over the ground source heat pump. So that was coming in first, and so the thing was running the, ground, the, the electric heater to heat the water and then using the ground source heat pump. And then what happened was the well was getting hotter and everything was just out of whack. We switched the control sequence around and the building performs exactly as modelled. But, you know, we'd never have picked that up if we hadn't gone back and done a post-occupancy evaluation. We had a commissioning engineer on the project, we had a professional commissioner on the project, and even then, this, that, that code got switched around and it wasn't observed. So, you know, you have, there's endless stories like that in buildings and projects, that the, the, with the complexity of buildings, you need to keep looking at them, and you need to probably to go back and do post-occupancy evaluation if the clients will pay for it. But usually in our competitive fee market, it's very rarely even asked for in a fee schedule. In the Digital Future session, Alex McLaren of Edinburgh's Heriot Watt University asked who remembers the engineer after a project is finished. She makes a good point, because it's more often than not the architect's name that ends up attached to the building ten years down the line. So, what happens when an engineer stays involved with a project past the point of delivery? Max Fordham again. In the last recession, we started getting a whole lot of very clever bankers who were fed up with banking and tend to be engineers. And we have the sort of example of that is a woman called Tamsin Tweddle who has just been rushing after something called soft landings for building contracts. And it's a process in the procurement of buildings to try to address this particular problem of, of which you can say, if you like, the Navy used to do when they had a thing called... Um, Sea trials. Sea trials, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that, that, in a way, is one of the things. Tamsin is just won an award 
for doing for doing that, and I think she's trailblazing that particular aspect. Sibsi's BIM specialist, Carl Collins, has argued in his blogs and his turn on the podcast that BIM is a tool, a means to an end rather than an end in itself. Maybe this is where the future of the engineer lies. No human can ever hope to match the processing power of a computer when it comes to collecting, analysing and presenting data, but no computer has ever been able to demonstrate the skill and adaptability of an engineer in solving problems, and that most intangible attribute, well-being. Patrick Bellew again. Quality and fresh air, um, and uh, we do a lot of work with um, uh, providing buildings with more, more fresh air than perhaps Sibsi Code says you need. And a lot of uh, studies that are, are being conducted recently are suggesting that if you put up put the fresh air rate up to 24 litres a second, for example, in an office, you you reduce uh, short-term sick leave by about 30%, and there's all kinds of other, other metrics. And so that we're we're very interested in figuring out how we can push more air into buildings, but that without driving up the energy um, the energy issues. Uh, the thing that I think is the, the bothers me the most about buildings you go up to, I mean, I'm going to pick on Scotland, we have some offices up there. You know, there's a preoccupation with VRV, VRF, and, and, and heat pump based refrigeration systems, which is sort of the antithesis of that. You know, you're just recirculating very cold air on people the whole time, doesn't seem to be the thing to do in Scotland um, necessarily. So, you know, there are technologies that we have at our disposal that could, uh, for, you know, for most of the country, can, can provide much, much more fresh air with totally much more passive cooling systems for, the, for that air before it comes in, earth ducts, labyrinths, my favourite things. You know, those sorts of things are ways of doing buildings so much better than we do them now, if in the right, right site and the right, um, the right location. Thank you very much to our two speakers, Patrick Bellow and Max Fordham, here speaking at the 2016 conference and exhibition. That's about all we've got time for today, and in fact for this year. I hope you've enjoyed listening to our new podcast and that you'll be back for more in January 2017. As usual, you can find more information on this and all our podcasts via the blog, and you can find all past episodes by searching Sibsi on the iTunes app or any other podcasting app. That's all from me, and it just leaves me to say I hope you have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.